0: Supportive care is a glaring need in cancer care, but myths, misconceptions, and mixed messages create barriers for broader palliative program implementation. I'm Nicole Magziars, Associate Director of Product and Strategy at New Century Health. And with me today to debunk the myths surrounding palliative care are Dr. Vinay Prasad, a hematologist-oncologist, associate professor of medicine at the University of California in San Francisco and best-selling author of Malignant, how bad policy and bad evidence harm people with cancer. And Dr. Andrew Hurtler, chief medical officer with New Century Health. Gentlemen, great to have you back.
1: Thank you very much, Nicole. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here and welcome Dr. Prasad. This is certainly a little bit of a different topic, but a very timely and very important topic as well. Uh, we all talk uh, more and more about palliative care but just what are the benefits of palliative care?
2: That's a great question. Um, and I guess I, I I will I will just jump in and say, you know I'm'm I'm, I'm a secret. That's no, not that secret. I'm a palliative care supporter. It's out in the open. I'm a palliative care supporter. Um, I, I have read recently that we should probably change our language a little around it and call it um, supportive care. Uh, I, I read that, you know, that might be a better way to phrase it. Um, it may not have the some of the connotations that palliative care has, um, but may also emphasize that this is really a support that we ought to provide patients throughout their cancer journey. Um, and I'll, I'll go further and I'll say... Um, You know, in my mind, some of the most important things we do as an oncologist, as a doctor, is to take very seriously um, the symptoms, um, the suffering, uh, the pain, the discomfort, the challenges of our patients, and try to do our best um, to ameliorate those, to optimize those. Um, So I think we need palliative care. I think we need supportive care. I think we should do it. I think we should pay for it. I think it is the human thing to do. Um, That said, um, I have noted with interest over the last few years, there have been a number of studies um, that have suggested, I think, that there may potentially be a survival benefit from early palliative care. Um, I would say that th- those kinds of studies, um, they, 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 they make me feel a little conflicted um, because if I'm wearing my, my randomized in- trial interpretation hat, which, you know, in my line of work, I wear often. I tend to be a purist. I like to say, you know, I'll believe a survival benefit of a randomized trial if the study was appropriately powered for a survival benefit and if that was the primary endpoint of the study and you found a survival benefit, then my I will totally agree that that is a survival benefit. Um, if studies were designed for other primary endpoints and survival was looked at post hoc, um, uh, I'm not necessarily sure I would accept that that survival benefit is real. And that's the same standard I hold for drugs. Um, as I would hold for you know, a, a supportive care program. Um, but I honestly think the discussion of whether it improves survival or quality of life, um, it misses the point, uh, really, which is that palliative and supportive care is something we ought to do. It is fundamental to being a doctor. Um, but I'm curious how you think about it, Dr. Hurtler.
1: I see palliative care uh, really as a supplement to Our standard oncology care so often when I speak with uh, oncologists and and we have been prompting uh, our provider networks when we see a patient who is losing weight, who's on their third or fourth line of chemotherapy, who the duration of each chemotherapy uh, regimen becomes shorter and shorter to institute palliative care. And so often, even amongst oncologists, what really discourages me is they'll say, my patient's not ready for palliative care. Uh, There is still a confusion of palliative care with hospice care, uh, and that we really need to realize that palliative care is not, it really is supportive care. And I've heard that proposal as well, that we're not, no one is saying, don't give your patient chemotherapy. We're saying let's supplement this uh, with some additional care that's really going to concentrate uh, on improving the patient's uh, quality of life uh, as much as uh, as much as possible. Uh, and from that standpoint, it, it's also uh, frequently kicked around in my mind. Just what is palliative care when we see these studies that show a quality of life improvement and? Uh, uh, your comments were very enlightening about survival, uh, but certainly uh, numerous studies showing savings uh, from instituting uh, palliative care, financial savings. Just what is the palliative care? What is the secret sauce uh, in all of this uh, that that does lead to these improvements? And I, I've. Uh, be very interested in your thoughts. I think a part of my thought is is actually sitting down. Someone sitting down with the patient, probably with more time than most oncologists have to to do that, but having a discussion with them. We we hope uh, that this therapy works. Uh, but in the event it doesn't, what would your wishes be? How would you want to approach that? What's really important to you? What are your goals? And in my own mind, that's what the secret sauce is. Maybe I'm missing the boat altogether, but I, I, I very much like to hear your thoughts.
2: Yeah, no, I I mean, I I, I agree with everything you said. Um, uh, I think that many of us who've, who've spent a lot of time talking to people as they progress through different lines of treatment or, or near the end of life realize that, you know, the more you're honest with your patient about the limitations and the known toxicities of salvage and ladder lines of therapy, you know, so often the more you really have those discussions, um, just being honest about what we know and what we don't know, people tell you what they want, what they value, what they care about, what they wish to pursue with what little time they may have remaining. Um, And that might not always be coming to your office and waiting in your lobby and getting a drug that may or may not lengthen their life. Um, It might be going home and spending time with family. And I think that's sort of a natural thing, um, a understandable thing. And by sending people to a supportive care or palliative care s- referral, often they do have those conversations. They do spend that time. They sit down with the patient. Um, and, and that's why it perhaps I suspect it leads to those choices. I mean, I guess I would say, you know, I think it's a win-win for everybody. I mean, I, I don't want to say that sending a patient to palliative care means I don't have those discussions. I still have all those discussions. I still do all that stuff I would do anyway, but somebody reinforces it. You know, somebody goes after the fact and they they have that conversation again. And you know, sometimes it takes two people to have a conversation. Sometimes that's a great help. And I think it it helps me as a doctor as an oncologist because I'm grateful to know that my patient their pain medicine is being looked at by one other doctor too. That you know that they're not going to potentially you know, be in a pinch and and need a refill. I'm grateful that another doctor is helping me think about how to handle nausea, um, how to handle, um, you know, um, insomnia. I'm grateful for that. And so I think you know, I, I guess in my experience, I don't think it's had to be, it's never been a hard sale to say that, you know, it would be great for my patients to get some extra supportive care. Uh, I'm for that. I'm really for that. And I think it, it it enriches the interactions I have with the patients. It makes their lives better. Um, I, I don't think I'm ever going to be critical of that.
1: You know, this is a topic that is brought up all the time in my discussions with practices, uh, with payers, with clients. Um... I'm repeatedly asked, what can you do for palliative care? How you, can you encourage it? And there's pretty much agreement uh, that there's benefit from palliative care, yet we don't seem to get it instituted. We, we we used a prompt at New Century Health within our own clinical pathway tool when we saw Data coming in suggesting that the patient was beginning uh, to show signs of not responding to multiple chemotherapy regimens or had a tumor type, which we know often does not do well when they were losing weight and prompt them for palliative care. And and these were patients with very advanced disease. Um, I remember a patient, pancreatic cancer on third line therapy, metastatic pancreatic cancer. And when we uh, suggested that, you, they might consider a palliative care referral uh, in addition to chemotherapy. We were told by the patient's oncologist, nope, they're not ready for it. This patient is not ready for it yet. So there, there are still uh, these obstacles. And uh, what's causing that? Why is there this, um, this resistance to palliative care, even though we all seem to agree uh, that it's useful? Uh, is it all just the connotations associated with the word? Do we need to call it supportive care? Because in our experience, only one out of four of the patients we recommended uh, for palliative care were actually referred.
2: Hmm. I guess that's, uh, that's I'm, 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 I'm disheartened to hear that. Um, I think um, some of it might be the connotation that if you make that referral, um, you won't be able to prescribe anti-cancer medications. Um, I think we just have to dispel that myth. I think you you can and you ought to prescribe anti cancer medicines, but maybe the patient will come back to you and say that they may not feel like they want to pursue those anti cancer medicines. And I think that that that's their that's their that's their right, their privilege. Um, that that that's our honor to to serve what they what they would want. Um, I would say I would say that it is. I would really advise these physicians that it is it is the best thing that you can do is to make these referrals. Um, I'll tell you why. Um, uh, uh, we are busy. We talked about this, I think, on a prior podcast. We're busy. We have busy clinics. Um, getting somebody else to help you manage some of these things, uh, nausea, neuropathy, uh, insomnia, um, uh, it, it, it will make your life better as a doctor. I mean, that's the this selfish thing to you. It's going to make it better for you. That's one. Two, it's going to make it better for your patients. It's going to be better for your patients. They often may even be um, more able to uh, tolerate uh, treatment you want to give them. Um, and so I think that the old mantra that the referral meant, um, that you're no longer going to pursue, uh, anti-cancer therapies. I-, I don't think that's the case anymore. I don't think that's the, that's not the new, uh, palliative supportive care. I think that's sort of an old uh, mantra, but you know, medicine is, it's one of those great fields that it's, it's hard to change. Um, it's hard to change our thinking about things, uh, uh, we all get comfortable to how we have seen things. And, and, and I guess this is a place I think I would encourage people to give it a, give it a fresh start, give it a try and, and see how you like it.
1: So just who should provide the palliative care? Uh, we, we see all sorts of different models. I've seen everything from lay uh, palliative care workers to um, clinical social workers to uh, palliative care specialists to advanced nurse practitioners with some uh, palliative care training to the patient's primary oncologist themselves. Uh, what is the, is there an appropriate model? Uh, should all of the above be uh, involved? What are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I guess I would say I don't have strong feelings, and I think that it would probably vary whether or not you're practicing in. You know, rural Southern Oregon, or if you're practicing in, in downtown San Francisco, it might be different solutions for different places. Um, but I will say that no matter who it is, I think the keys to a really successful palliative supportive care relationship are um, you want somebody who's really invested, who's available, who's available, um, you know, several days in clinic so that the patient can pop in, pop out, who, who can put the time. Um, Because, you know, as you and I both know, Dr. Hurtler, sometimes these medications, it's it's a titration game. It's a game of, um, it's a matter of getting the right dose. It's a matter of working with someone to find the right balance, especially for pain and nausea and things like that. Um, And you want somebody who's got the time, the energy, the resources to put that in. And, you know, I think um, as an oncologist, I try my best to to be that person. You know, I want to be that person too but I'm, I'm not above asking for some help and taking the help of somebody. Just as I rely on my nurses in clinic and I rely on them a great deal, um, I'm happy to rely on, on, on the palliative care team.
1: And I, I think that, that that's very important uh, for all of us as oncologists to, to realize uh, and to be willing uh, to share our patients with other specialists. Uh, I think at times I've almost detected a patient ownership issue that this is my patient and I will take care of my patient. Uh, and and also a, a fear of, of mixed messages. There seems to be a real fear with the oncologist who thinks the patient should continue with chemotherapy and a fear that this palliative care specialist is going to somehow talk their patient out of therapy. And I don't know if that's any. Thing you've run into before, but uh, I've had several oncologists verbalize uh, the concern that there will be mixed messaging, that their patient will lose their trust in them, um, and, and try. We yeah, have to find a way to overcome that.
2: Well, Dr. Hurtler, I guess I would say to that: I, I, I'm deeply sympathetic to the oncologist who feels that way, um, and I would say. I would say I have, I have found in the course of, of my career um, one way around it. And here's my suggestion. Um, wherever you work, you need to get the phone numbers, ideally the cell phone numbers of your palliative care doctor. And, and, and you've got to have a good relationship with, him, with them. And, and I say there's no substitute for picking up and calling, calling them up and saying, you know, um, my patient, Mrs. Smith, she's going to come see you. Let me tell you about her. And let me tell you what I'm hoping we can do for her. And then you'll find, I think, in my experience, you know, it's going to run really smooth. It's going to be a partnership, um, and the same I would say. You know, you talk about ownership, and I, I would say that the place, um, the setting, that always gets me, where I feel like, um, you know, I, I feel that feeling like I. I I want to have that ownership is of course the inpatient consult service. You know, I'm called in as a hematologist or sometimes an oncologist um, to consult on the patient. And I've got an ICU doctor consulting. I got an ID doctor. I got a rheumatologist. I got a general doctor. Um, And I find, again, if you want to get through those, those multi-team territory wars, it feels like um, you just pick up the phone you call the other attendings, you call the attendings, you talk to them for five minutes, And uh, in my experience, that's what it takes. It goes so smoothly um, and everyone's on board. Um, You know, we in oncology, we have a lot to offer um, often for our patients with cancer. For better or worse, we are the drivers of the ship because we're driving, you know, the the, malig- the the issue that is going to be the most defining for their, their life. Um, and and sometimes it's just a matter of explaining to the other services what we hope to do, what we're doing, and why we're doing what we're doing. And, and, and to be honest with you, they, they may not always understand until you call them. Because the truth is, until you do your oncology fellowship, the average person, they don't get a lot of oncology exposure and they don't know a lot about it. And so I think we get to do, we do the role of educator, too.
1: That's an incredibly useful suggestion and one that, that I think we can all take home with us. Very few patients in my experience with cancer are taken care of uh, by one person. It's almost always a team. Uh, and it's essential for any well-functioning team to communicate above them, uh, amongst themselves so they're all pushing in the same direction. And that's what in the, at the end of the day is going to lead to what we all want, which is the best possible outcome for our patients
2: couldn't say better myself.
0: Great point to end on. Dr. Prasad, Dr. Hurtler, thank you as always. To those listening, don't forget to visit us on newcenturyhealth.com for more on this topic and for future episodes in this series.